Well, it should come as no surprise that 90% of all media presents us with bad news. Think about that for a moment. 90% of all media news is focused on stories that bring bad news to their audience. And one reason for this is due to the fact that people tend to prefer negative news over positive stories. Yeah, it's, it's strange to consider, and yet people tend to prefer negative news over positive news. As a matter of fact, studies have shown how headlines, which include bad news, catch 30% more of our attention. The, the use of negative words like bad or worst or never, these words are 30% more effective at catching people's attention than the use of positive words. And headlines with negative bias actually show a 63% higher result when compared to the attention grabbed by positive headlines. And simply put, those who are in charge of the media, they love to publish negative news because bad news sells. Bad news sells. This is what some experts have uh, now been calling bad news bias, which should not be compared or misunderstood with the bad news bears. That's something else altogether. But just to be clear, bad news bias, this is based on the belief that negative news deserves more of our attention. And the reason why is because bad news is based on information that could have a negative effect on our lives. And seeing how bad news could have a negative effect on our lives, we tend to give it more of our attention. People are quick to spring into some sort of action as they see bad news. And one way that we do this is by copying that link to that bad news story and sending it to everyone on our contacts list or sharing it on our social media sites. And so we see bad news and we want to share it. As a result, bad news travels faster than good news. Good news, well, it moves at a snail's pace in comparison to bad news. And the reason why? Well, it's because good news is perceived as being boring or insignificant or irrelevant. And it's sad to say that this is true of the gospel message of grace. This bad news bias, well, it's apparently affected our great commission because, you know, Christians tend to, you know, rather focus on bad news than the good news that's found in the gospel message. And knowing that the good news of the gospel message is less than interesting to many, many people, well, I want to spend some time today considering a few goals for, for how we ought to go about preaching the gospel of grace so that we can make the good news of Jesus Christ more interesting to those who just don't care to hear it. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that uh, you know, we should have the gospel goal of, uh, of preaching the gospel with righteous resolve. Secondly, we should preach the gospel uh, with the goal of righteous reason. And then thirdly and finally, we should preach the gospel with the goal of righteous respect. Well, with this as the outline... Let's open our Bibles now to Philippians chapter 1. Here we find Paul. He's presenting the Christians there at the church in Philippi with these three gospel goals. And as we make our way to the first chapter of Philippians, well, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Paul began this book by commending the Christians there at the church in Philippi for the way that they had entered the fellowship of faith through the reception 
of the gospel of grace. They heard the gospel message and they immediately embraced it. And and as a result, they enter into the fellowship of faith by faith in Jesus Christ. And so he expresses his appreciation for the way that they not only received the gospel of grace, but also for the way they continued walking in the gospel of grace as they engaged in the defense and in the confirmation of the gospel message. Well, now here in our text today, we find Paul advancing his point by presenting them with a few gospel goals that he was hoping that they would walk out. And with this as our goal, let's uh, pick up our study of Philippians chapter 1. If you would look with me there, we'll begin reading at verse 12. Here Paul declares, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed For the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Now here in these verses we find Paul. He's helping the disciples there at the church in Philippi to develop a proper perspective regarding God's plan to reach the world with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And just to be clear, I should take a moment to remind you that the word gospel in this context, it refers to good news, and more specifically, it refers to good news by which sinners can be saved from the punishment that we deserve. I'll also remind you that Paul provided us with a simple summary of the gospel message by referring to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ. And we find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's there in verses 1 through 4. There Paul declares, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures." From this, we can see that the gospel message, well, it's centered around the identity and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. The gospel message is focused on the identity and the ministry of Jesus. As for the identity of our Savior, Jesus is the human incarnation of the infinite Logos and therefore the Son of God. As for the ministry of our Messiah... Well, Christ Jesus is the sinless Savior who offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And what this means then is that the gospel message is based on both the identity and the ministry of our Messiah. If you get one of those two points wrong, then it's no longer the gospel. It's what we call a false gospel, and we'll consider more about that later on in this study. But I want to remind you of the the fact that every Christian has been called to preach the gospel of grace. We've been called to go into the world 
and present both the identity and the ministry of our Messiah. And this is precisely the point that Jesus was making in Mark chapter 16. It's verse 15 where the Lord Jesus declares, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We've been called to preach the gospel to every creature. And and I get it, you might want to run home and preach to your cat. You don't need to do that. That's... That's not what we're talking about. And if you want to preach to your dog, you want to present the gospel to your dog, you don't need to do that. And, and you know, I, I, I joke about this, but it is sad to say that there are many Christians who care more about their pets than they do about people. Yeah, they spend more time and energy loving on their pets than they do going out and preaching the gospel to, their, to people. And yet, this is what Jesus has called us to do, to go preach the gospel to every person. He's commanded us to preach the gospel message of grace so that you know, the, the people who are unbelievers might be saved. You see, the reason for this calling is because the gospel of Christ contains the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel of Christ contains the power of God for the salvation of those who will believe in it. And so we've been called to preach the gospel message to every person as we present them with the details surrounding Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So we should preach the gospel with the hope that the unbelievers in our sphere of influence might repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. Now with this as the goal, I want to take some time to consider Paul's resolve and the example that he set for the rest of us. And so if you would hold your place here in Philippians I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and more specifically, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 16. See, it's here in the 16th chapter of Acts where Luke presents us with the day when Paul received a vision from the Lord, which helped him to realize that it was the right time for his team to go to the Macedonian city of Philippi. And with all of this context in mind, I want to consider Luke's account of the vision Paul received. If you would look with me there at Acts chapter 16. We'll begin reading there at verse 9. Here we learn that a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to do what? To preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, And the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. Now, I want to stop here because here we find Luke describing this day when Paul was led by this vision in the night to a city of Philippi, which was in Macedonia. And we must not fail to notice that the Lord wasn't leading Paul to go on some sort of sightseeing tour of Macedonia. This wasn't some vacation trip, you know, with with all included benefits. No, instead, the Lord is calling him to go and preach the gospel to the people of that region. And so it was with righteous resolve that Paul set sail for Philippi so that he could bring the gospel of grace to the people who were there in Macedonia. And in order to more fully grasp Paul's resolve to go and preach the gospel there in Philippi, well, I should take a moment to point out that it didn't take long before Paul and his team were being persecuted for their testimony. As a matter of fact, Paul and Silas uh, were soon brought before the authorities there in the marketplace of Philippi. 
And they were beaten with rods there in the marketplace. And they were placed into prison where Paul and Silas then started singing the praises of the Lord. Incredible. It was at that point in time when an earthquake shook the foundations of the prison there in Philippi. And the prison doors were opened up. uh, But rather than fleeing from their incarceration, Paul and Silas remained resolved to stay there so that they could preach the gospel. And as a result... They stayed there and presented the good news to a prison guard who immediately embraced the gospel of grace. I want to consider Luke's account, which is found here in Acts chapter 16. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 26. Here Luke goes on to tell us that there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's prioritizing preaching over his own personal freedom. He had the opportunity to secure his own personal freedom by fleeing from that prison, but he stayed. Though the chains were no longer on his ankles, though the prison doors had been thrown open, Paul and Silas remained behind. And the reason why is because the Lord called him to preach the gospel there in Philippi. Regardless of whether he was standing in the marketplace or in the synagogue or sitting in a prison cell, regardless of where he was in Philippi, he was there to preach the gospel. So what does it matter where? Paul was filled with this righteous resolve to preach the gospel to those who were there to listen. And listen, this was not only true there in Philippi, but he had the same resolve as he made his way to Rome. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Philippians chapter 1, where we find Paul now writing this epistle to the church in Philippi from a Roman prison. If you would look with me again, beginning at verse 12. Here, Paul declares, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has come, become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Here in these verses, we find Paul referring to his Roman imprisonment as something that was furthering the gospel. Rather than complaining about his incarceration, Paul rejoiced as he realized that his imprisonment there in Rome was actually turning into more and more opportunities to advance the gospel of grace. And one reason why was due to the fact that he was able to preach the gospel to the soldiers who were in charge of his imprisonment. You better believe that Paul would have never been invited into uh, the, the, the prison system there in Rome to just start preaching to prisoners and soldiers alike. But Through his imprisonment, he was able to reach the unreachable. And while they thought that they were locking Paul in with them, Paul was saying, no, no, you guys locked me in with you. Now you've got to listen to me. 
And that's why he says, hey, my chains aren't because of Rome. My chains are in Christ. Christ has me in this Roman prison. Christ is calling me to preach the gospel here in this place. And so in, in, in the eyes of Paul, he's saying, hey, this is turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. This has turned out for the opportunity for me to continue preaching the gospel. And it was with this righteous resolve that he sat in those chains, preaching to prisoners and soldiers alike. His righteous resolve was based on the fact that the Lord had called him to preach the gospel, and that's what he was resolved to do. As a result, those who were looking on became more confident in their own calling. And I want to consider how Paul explains it here in these verses. If you would look with me again, beginning at Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, here Paul declares, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's rejoicing in the fact that his imprisonment there in Rome was actually helping others to become bold believers who were also preaching the gospel with great confidence, knowing that the Lord is with us. In other words, the resolve that Paul demonstrated during the days of his Roman incarceration encouraged other disciples who were once too afraid to preach the gospel to now realize that there's nothing to fear. Why? Well, because we're serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so believers who were once too afraid to share the gospel saw what Paul was going through, saw how God was blessing his ministry, and decided that there's nothing for us to fear. So those once fearful disciples developed the same righteous resolve to preach the gospel of grace, regardless of whether we're in the synagogues or in the marketplace or in some sort of prison cell. From this, we can see how our gospel goals should begin by developing a righteous resolve to simply walk in obedience with the great commission of Jesus Christ. I'll remind you, it's in Mark chapter 16. There the Lord Jesus declared, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This isn't the great suggestion. This is the great commission. This is something that every Christian has been called to do. And, and there should be no doubt in our minds that the Lord Jesus has called us to preach the gospel to anyone who will listen. And with this as the goal, I encourage every Christian to share the same resolve that Paul demonstrated as he set out to accomplish his calling, whether he was in the marketplace or in prison. Whether we're standing in the marketplace, getting our groceries, or we're sitting in a prison cell, we ought to be preaching the gospel with righteous resolve. And regardless of whether we're at work or we're chilling on vacation, we ought to look for every opportunity to preach the gospel with righteous resolve. Now this brings us to our second point, because listen, believers should not only preach the gospel with righteous resolve, but we should also preach the gospel with righteous reasons. And to explain what I mean by this, I want to consider how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 1. Let's back up once again, beginning reading at verse 12. 
Here, Paul declares, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that it's not enough to just have the right resolve. Like We can have the right resolve to go out and preach the gospel, but then preach the gospel for all the wrong reasons. In order to explain you know, what he's concerned about here, Paul takes the time to describe the difference between those who are preaching the gospel with a heart that's filled with love and those who have the wrong resolve because they preach the gospel for less than loving reasons. With that, I want to notice again here in verse 15, Paul again declares, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's describing these disciples who were preaching Christ, and yet for the wrong reasons. They had a resolve to preach Christ, but they're just preaching for the wrong reasons. And just to be clear, Paul refers to those who are engaging in evangelism with a heart that's filled with envy. Now, that word envy is found there in verse 15. It's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are wrestling with feelings of unrighteous jealousy. And from this we see that there were some who were preaching Christ because they were envious of others who were probably being used by the Lord. It's possible that there were believers in the church there in Philippi who were truly being used by the Lord and, and God was blessing their ministry And so there were maybe others who were looking at the benefits of those blessings coming from the Lord and thinking, well, I want some of that. And so they start preaching the gospel too, but their reason is because they want the blessings of God, not the conversion of unbelievers. And so maybe that was the sort of situation happening here with these Christians who were preaching Christ from a place of envy or jealousy. But I also want to notice that there were also those who were sharing their faith from an emotional state of strife. And that word strife, which is found there in the middle of verse 15, well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of the contentious Christians who are spoiling for an argument. These, of course, are the Christians who are resolved to preach the gospel because they just love debating people. They love debating people. And while there's a time and a place for us to defend the faith with reasonable arguments, at the same time, those who share the faith in order to just stir up strife with people well, they're typically preaching the gospel for all the wrong reasons. And listen, if you just you know, love to argue with people and so you bait people into these arguments using the gospel of grace as your bait, it's the wrong reason and it's not loving at all. I want to consider how Paul put it here in verse 16. Here we learn that the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. Now, the Greek word here that's rendered selfish ambition, it it was used at this period of time 
in a political sense in reference to those who engaged in the self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Now, I don't have time to get into a dissertation on American politics, but uh, let's just say that that word sums it all up. But listen, the, the same Greek word that's translated selfish ambition was also used of those who engage in self-promotion you know, with the selfish desire of securing personal popularity, sort of like social media influencers who use clickbait uh, lies in order to get more likes. Uh, we've all seen it, and it's, you know, it's something that a lot of people aspire to be in this day and age, and yet you know, uh, the, the concept of self-promotion for popularity's sake, it's not the right reason uh, to share the gospel of grace. Those who preach the gospel for the sake of personal popularity are being motivated by the wrong reasons. We should also notice that Paul referred to those as being insincere, and he did this by declaring this in verse 16, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, or in other words, self-promotion, and not sincerely. In other words, they weren't being real about the reasons for why they were preaching. They were preaching the gospel, pretending to care about the people they're preaching to, when in reality, they're really just interested in their own self-promotion. What this means then is that their motives weren't pure, that they weren't pure uh, and, and their, their plans were being veiled. Rather than sharing their faith from a heart filled with love for the unbeliever they're talking to, their preaching was uh, being motivated by a hidden purpose. They weren't being sincere. And according to Paul, those who were stirring up strife with these impure motives, well, they were causing such a commotion in the world that it was actually adding affliction to Paul's Roman incarceration. So they were actually doing damage with the wrong motivations. Well, listen, as we consider those who are preaching for the wrong reasons, like jealous envy and selfish ambition, we should also take a moment to realize that it's not uncommon for Christians to be motivated by something other than the love of our Messiah. You know, there are a lot of Christians who won't preach the gospel at all because they're still afraid. Meanwhile, there are those who do preach the gospel, but just for the wrong motivations. And when it comes to the spiritual discipline of evangelism, we should take some time to check our own hearts before we end up becoming those believers who are more focused on winning arguments rather than winning souls. Listen, if you go out and share your faith because you're spoiling for an argument and you're more interested in winning the argument than you are winning the soul of the person, you need to dial it back and rethink your whole agenda here. And you need to ask the Lord to give you a heart of his love for the people that we're trying to reach. While it's true that the love of the Lord should be the reason why we're sharing the good news of God's grace, well, at the same time, we should make sure that our defense of the gospel is also based on good reasons as well. Now, to explain what I mean by this, let's consider the way that Paul put it here in Philippians chapter 1. If you would look with me once again at verse 16, here Paul declares, The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Here we find Paul, he's commending those who are preaching from a heart filled with love and then acknowledging that he himself was appointed to the defense of the gospel. And just to be clear, that word defense, it's found there in verse 17. It's translated from the Greek word apologia, which speaks of, the, of a verbal defense or a reasoned statement or argument. In this context, 
The word apologia, it refers to a reasonable response that's offered in defense of the Christian faith. And with this definition in mind, it'll help you to know that the discipline that we call Christian apologetics, it actually refers to the righteous goal of defending the doctrines of the Christian faith through systematic argumentation and discourse. Now, I I want you to also notice here that Paul here, he informs his audience that he was appointed for apologetics. He says that he was appointed for the defense or the apologia of the gospel. In other words, Paul was not only resolved to preach the gospel everywhere he went, regardless of whether he was in the marketplace or the prison cell, but he was also ready. He was ready to defend the doctrines of the gospel with well-reasoned arguments. The reason why? Well, it's due to the fact that Christians have been commissioned to defend the faith. You might not know this, but that is the fact. Christians have been commissioned to not only preach the gospel, but we've been commissioned to defend the faith with reasonable arguments which help unbelievers to realize that our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually based on reasonable arguments. In order to make my case, let's consider the way that the Apostle Peter explains it in his first epistle. So hold your place here in the book of Philippians, and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. As you make your way to the third chapter of Peter's first epistle, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Christian who relies on emotional explanations, uh, they're not you know, helping people at all. Th- those who rely on irrational arguments, Well, they failed to provide good reasons for why the unbelievers we're witnessing to should repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And listen, over the years, as I've shared my faith with unbelievers and as I've, you know, helped uh, Christians to understand the best uh, approach to apologetics, you know, I've come across many Christians who their arguments are all emotional or irrational and they're not good reasons at all. And listen, if you go out and share emotional arguments or or irrational arguments to an unbeliever, then it's not going to convince them. It's not going to help them. Uh, to see their need for Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that we should spend time studying the discipline of Christian apologetics so that we can be ready to defend our faith with good reasons. I'm going to consider how uh, the Apostle Peter explains this here in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 15, here Peter declares, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now here in these verses we find the Apostle Peter, he's encouraging every Christian to be ready. We've been called to be ready with a defense. Uh, That's that same word, apologia, which is the root word for our English word, apologetics. We are to be ready with an apologetic argument, a reasonable defense for why we believe it's correct to hope in Jesus Christ. And as we preach the gospel to those who are still rejecting Jesus, we ought to provide them with rational reasons for why they too should trust in Jesus Christ. With this as the goal, every Christian should be ready with these reasonable arguments, having spent time studying Christian apologetics. 
This, of course, would include the argument from the prophecies that prove the divine inspiration of the Bible, as well as the deity of our Savior, Jesus Christ. When we present people with an argument from the prophetic nature of the Bible, we help them to see that only somebody sitting outside of time and space could actually present us with all of these prophecies in advance and then have them come to pass perfectly in the life of Jesus Christ. The, the, the prophetic argument from the scriptures prove that the Bible is divinely inspired and that Jesus Christ truly is God incarnate. We can also present arguments from the archaeological discoveries that demonstrate the historicity of the Bible, that the Bible was written in the time period that it claims to have been written in. We can also present them with cosmological arguments, which provide scientific support for the creation account that we find in the book of Genesis. We can present them with teleological arguments, which point to the natural design of the world as evidence of a divine designer. There's the transcendental argument and the moral argument. There's the ontological argument and presuppositional arguments. There's, there's so many arguments that actually support our Christian faith. We just have to actually spend enough time to study these things so that we are ready with a defense. To sum it all up, listen, those who preach the gospel, well, we ought to be preaching for the right reason as we present reasonable arguments for why unbelievers should turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now this brings us to our third point, because listen, believers should not only preach the gospel with righteous resolve, and we should not only preach the gospel with righteous reasons, but we should also preach the gospel with righteous respect. And to explain what I mean, I want to consider how Paul puts it here in our text today. And so let's, let's back up and take another look at Philippians chapter 1. I want to draw your attention back to verse 15. Here again, Paul declares, Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Now as we take a closer look at these verses, we must not fail to notice how Paul here is equating the gospel message with the, the truth of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it's there in verse 15, again, where Paul refers to those who are preaching Christ for various reasons. He equates this with what he previously called the gospel. And so preaching the gospel and preaching Christ, they're effectively the same thing. Again, in verses 16 and 17, he refers to every evangelist as those who preach Christ. Preaching the gospel is equivalent to preaching Christ. Finally, in verse 18, Paul rejoices in knowing that Christ was being uh, preached. Christ, or, or, or the good news about the who and the what of Jesus Christ, was being preached. These verses remind us of the fact that the gospel message is about Christ. When we preach the gospel, we are preaching Christ Jesus. Or you might put it like this, that the gospel message is about the who and the what of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus and what did he do? And listen, this is true regardless of the reasons for why people might go out and preach the gospel of grace. As long as somebody is preaching the truth of the gospel, well, then it doesn't really matter what their motives are. 
Not, not according to the big picture. Let's consider again how Paul puts it here in verse 18. There again, he declares, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Here we see that Paul wasn't overly concerned about those who were preaching Christ from pretense. That word pretense, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who do something with a pretended cause. This, of course, uh, is a reference to those who are preaching the gospel from selfish ambition and not from sincerity. And Paul knew, Paul knew that there were those who were preaching Christ from envy and strife, and yet he still rejoiced in knowing that the good news of Christ Jesus was still being preached. You know, if, if a person goes out and preaches the truth of the gospel, though their motives might be wrong, the message is still correct. And so it's important to understand that Paul here, he's saying, hey, you know, regardless of the motives, I'm just happy that Christ is being preached. Now, listen, we shouldn't treat this as Paul approving of those who had the wrong motives. Paul's not saying, do you got the wrong motives for preaching? Oh, that's okay. Go for it. You know, that's, that's he's not saying that. No, he's saying that, that, hey, my priority is that Christ is being preached regardless of the reasons or why they're doing it. This kind of reminds me of the modern phrase, there's no such thing as bad press. You know, when people are trying to get their information out there, well, as long as people are talking about it, they're okay with that. And whether they're saying good things or bad things about it, they're okay with it, right? And it's kind of that mentality where Paul is saying, hey, I'm just, I'm just glad that people are talking about Jesus. And I'm just glad that the truth of the gospel is getting out there regardless of the reasons for why it's out there. Reminds me of my buddy John Newberry, who pastors the church there in Harker Heights. You know, he came to faith in Christ after hearing friends of mine mocking me in what I was saying about Jesus Christ. It was in their mockery that my buddy heard the gospel and ended up becoming a Christian. So, you know, good for him. And, and yet the people who were mocking the gospel had all the wrong reasons for why they were talking about Jesus. And yet Jesus used that and helped John Newberry come to faith. Praise the Lord for that. So Paul is saying, hey, as long as it's the truth being preached, I don't care about the motives. But now what about those who weren't really preaching the truth about Jesus Christ? And with this question in mind, let's take a closer look there at verse 18, because there Paul again declares, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Now, as we take a closer look at this verse, we must not fail to notice how Paul was presenting a contrast here between those who preach from pretense and those who preach Christ in truth. That word truth, well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to that which corresponds with reality. When our thoughts correspond with what is real, then we're thinking true thoughts. When our statements correspond with reality, then we're saying true things. That's what this word truth speaks of. And according to Thayer's lexicon, the original Greek word was used in reference to the truth in respect to God and the execution of his purposes through Christ Jesus. At the same time, Thayer also informs us that the same Greek word was also used with respect to the duties of man 
opposing alike to the superstitions of the Gentiles and the inventions of the Jews and the corrupt opinions and precepts of false teachers even among Christians. In other words, truth is that which is in opposition to false teachings. The truth of Jesus Christ is in conflict or in opposition to the false teachings of any false teacher out there. And so Paul is rejoicing and knowing that there were Christians out there who were preaching the gospel of Christ in truth. And to sum this up, listen, those who preach Christ in truth are presenting the gospel with respect for the truth. Now, someone who preaches Christ out of pretense, they might get the message right, but they have the wrong motives. But how soon will those wrong motives lead them to preach something that's no longer true? And that's why it's more important for us to make sure that our reason for preaching the gospel is the love of the Lord so that then we are focused on making sure that what we're preaching is actually true, that it actually corresponds to reality. Those who preach Christ in truth then present the gospel with respect for the truth. And who is the truth? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the truth. And isn't Jesus the one we're preaching? And isn't Christ Jesus the one who who can actually save those who trust in him? And so we better believe that Paul, if you were here today, he would tell us, I would prefer that you preach Christ in truth rather than in pretense. In order to make my case, I want to consider the way that Paul warned the Christians in Galatia about the fact that there are false gospels out there. So if you would hold your place here in the book of Philippians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Galatians. I'd like you to turn to Galatians chapter 1. You see, it's here in the first chapter of Galatians where we find Paul. He's addressing the confused Christians who were beginning to embrace the false gospel of a group that came to be known as the Judaizers. Just to be clear, the Judaizers were Jews who had come to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but rather than embracing both the who and the what of the gospel message, they embraced the right who, but they failed to grasp the right what. And so rather than believing in a Jesus who completed the work necessary for our salvation, they began encouraging the Gentile converts to keep the Levitical law, uh, which included circumcision and the dietary restrictions and the Sabbath restrictions and so on and so forth. They were preaching the right Jesus, but then they were adding works to the gospel message. And after hearing about the way that the Christians there in Galatia, they were beginning to embrace the teachings of the Judaizers, Paul decided to write this letter in order to rebuke them and get them back on track. And with this context in mind, let's turn our attention to Galatians chapter 1. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 6, here Paul declares, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. 
From this we can see that those who are preaching Jesus plus works, they're preaching another gospel. If somebody preaches Jesus plus works, they are no longer preaching Christ in truth. And listen, the very second somebody suggests that the cross of Christ is insufficient to save, that the blood of Jesus Christ doesn't cleanse you from all sins, well, what they're effectively doing is inventing an ineffective message which actually becomes a curse upon those who receive it. The reason why is because a false gospel cannot save those who embrace it. A false gospel cannot save. That being the case, it's sad to say that the world is filled with people who are preaching a false gospel and without any respect for what is true. The truth is found in God's word if they'd simply read it. But they're not interested in that. They'd rather look at their catechism or they'd rather look at their uh, other, other works, their other gospels, their another testament of Jesus Christ or something else altogether. They'd look at, rather look at their own printed materials than find out what the Bible says. And it's for this reason that so many have embraced the Catholic gospel, which is the addition of sacred sacraments that must be performed in order to work your way into heaven. So even if an angel of heaven comes and preaches any other gospel, even if a man in a funny white hat comes along and preaches another gospel... Let them be accursed, Paul says. I know it's a really nice hat, but the message can't save you because it's, it's, not a, it's not a gospel at all. The, the, the Catholic Church has followed in the footsteps of the first century Judaizers by pre- presenting you with a list of you must do's in order to get saved. That's not good news. Jesus plus you got to do these works is not good news. In similar fashion, there are many leaders in the so-called Messianic Judaism movement. And they're nothing more than modern-day Judaizers. I'm not saying it's true of everyone who takes on the title Messianic Judaism. I mean, there's so many different ideas in this movement that it's hard to keep up with. But many are leading people back to the Levitical law as a means for salvation. And so you join this Judaizer movement, and next thing you know, they're telling you, you've got to keep the Sabbath. Got to keep Sabbath law. Huh. The minute they turn on the light switch in their home, they've broken the Sabbath. Can't eat shrimp Diablo anymore. Got to keep Levitical dietary restrictions. Despite what God told Peter? Yeah, they're, they're modern-day Judaizers who want to put you back under the law so that it's Jesus plus works. We find similar situations happening within the, the, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Church of Christ and anybody else who comes along and wants to add to the cross of Christ. Anybody that wants to come along and say, yeah, it's faith in Jesus, but it's also you got to do these things. you got to come to our church. you got to give us your money. you got to do these works. you got to get baptized in our water. They're requiring people to engage in the list of good works that they've created as a means for us to work our way into heaven, and they want to say it's good news. It's not good news. It's not a gospel message. 
Christian, listen, if it's your works and Jesus works together, you're not going to make it. But if we rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone and receive by faith that free gift of grace, that's good news. Knowing that the world is filled with false teachers who are preaching false gospels, I encourage you to follow the instructions that Paul presented in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's verses 23 through 26. There Paul declares, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. From this we can see that there's no reason, Christian, no reason for us to waste our time engaging in foolish arguments and ignorant disputes. And yet that's what the false teachers want to, want to engage us with. They, 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 they want us to get caught up in arguments about nothing at all. So the next time a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door and you answer it, you know, they're going to want to tell you that Jesus died on a stake and not on a cross. In other words, they want you to focus on the position of Christ's hands on the cross rather than what he actually did there. What does it matter if Jesus' hands were nailed together above him or nailed to his sides on a cross? Is that going to change what he did? How his hands were positioned? And yet that's what they want to focus on because it takes you away from the real issue, which is, Who is he and what did he do? Well, he's not Michael the archangel. And you better believe he finished the work necessary for our salvation. He's our substitutionary sacrifice. Therefore, they're wrong on the essentials while quibbling over something that's non-essential. And this is precisely what the the cult leaders want want us to get caught up in is arguing about non-essentials, foolish things, ignorant disputes that lead to, to nowhere, all the while failing to focus on the who and the what of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus and what did he do? These are the essentials of the gospel message. And so rather than getting caught up in foolish arguments and ignorant disputes and these sorts of things, Paul tells us to defend the truth. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God will perhaps grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, the truth of the gospel. Paul encourages us to lovingly correct those who are opposed to the truth. And so rather than seeing them as enemies of the cross, which is so easy to do, Paul reminds us that, listen, they're sinners who have been caught in the snare of the devil. They're sinners who are caught in the snare of the devil. So what are you going to do? Yell at them in their prison cell? Treat them like garbage while they're stuck you know, in, in the clutches of Satan? Or lovingly and respectfully present them with the truth of the gospel so that they might see the love of Jesus Christ in the way you address them? 
if we would, in humility, correct those who are in opposition and pray that God might grant them repentance, well, then they might be able to see the truth of the gospel so that they might come to their senses through repentance and remission of sins by faith in Jesus Christ. I think that Paul sums this up best in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's verse 15 where he again declares, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense, to give an apologetic argument to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And then he tells us to do this with meekness and fear. We are to present our apologetic defense with meekness and fear. You can also render the words meekness and fear, gentleness and respect. We are to present our defense of the gospel gently and respectfully. And with this as the goal, we should not only preach the gospel with respect for the truth of our Savior Jesus Christ, but we should also defend our faith with respect for the person that we're trying to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ. With all this in mind, I want to remind you in, in closing that uh, you know more people pay attention to bad news than good news. We're called to go out and preach the good news, and yet we live in a world where people prefer bad news. And with that being the case, well, we should probably spend some time presenting the people with the worst news they've ever heard. We should present them with the worst news they've ever heard before we give them the good news of the gospel message. Now, the enemy has duped many believers into thinking that it's cruel to tell people about hell. And yet, the world is craving bad news. So why wouldn't we give them what they want? We should go out and tell the world the worst news that they've ever heard, which is this, that we've all fallen short of God's righteous requirements. Every single one of us. And we can get into, you know, this sin versus that sin and what's the worst sin and all these sorts of things. But at the end of the day, we are all guilty before God. We have all fallen short of his righteous requirements and therefore we all deserve the righteous wrath which results in an everlasting punishment. And they'll, they'll say, well, it's not fair. It's not fair that it's an everlasting punishment. Really? Who says it's not fair? And who gets to determine what is fair and what is not? And the unbeliever might insist that, well, I've only committed a finite amount of sins. Why would I receive an infinite punishment? Well, how do you know that you're not going to continue sinning when you get to hell? You know, some prisoners end up with a longer time of incarceration because of bad behavior in prison. Not that I know anything about that. But yeah, if you go to prison and then you keep committing crimes in prison, you, you get more time. Unless you have a Democrat judge and then you get right out. But so, George Soros. But seriously, you know, once a person is thrown into hell, do you think they stop sinning at that point? Or do you think they continue sinning against God in their hatred against him? Listen, people love bad news. We've got the worst news ever. 
that those who fail to repent and those who reject Jesus Christ, there's eternity to pay for all of their sins. And in light of this bad news, you better believe that it'll get their attention. And once you have their attention, now it's time to present the good news. If I offer you a medication and say, you really should start taking this medication, you're going to be like, why? Well, it's good medication, but I feel great. But if I, as a doctor, prove to you that you're sick and you're about to die and this is the medication that can save you, do you think that you're going to take the medication? Listen, we need to help people to understand that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's standard, and we all deserve everlasting hell. And with this bad news in mind, we can then present the good news of Jesus Christ. And in order to present the good news of Jesus Christ, I encourage you to embrace these gospel goals. We should become those believers who are preaching the gospel with righteous resolve, committed to preaching Christ regardless of whether we're persecuted or prosecuted or promoted and applauded, regardless of whether we're in the marketplace or the synagogue or the prison system. It doesn't matter. We should resolve it in our hearts to continue preaching the gospel of grace so that some might be saved. We should also embrace the gospel goal, which is to preach the good news with righteous reason as we make sure that we have the right reasons for why we want to present the well-reasoned arguments for why we believe what we believe. And finally, we should set the gospel goal of preaching the good news with righteous respect. And in this way, we will become those believers who are sharing the good news with a respect for what is true, while simultaneously respecting those we're trying to reach with the truth of Jesus Christ. And as we accomplish these gospel goals, the Lord will use us by the power of the Holy Spirit to help unbelievers escape the bad news as we help them to embrace the good news, which is found in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.